Hi, this is Brent Weeks, author of the Lightbringer series. Welcome to the Legendarium. Cruxer is, uh, we all knew back in high school, we all knew the cool kids. And in case any of you were wondering, not me or Craig. No, no, that was, uh, no, we were, yeah, we were definitely on the outside looking in. Band room and theater room, that's where you found us. <laughs> welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode number 246. Uh, today we are discussing The Blinding Knife again. This is book two of the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks, and this is up to the end of book two. So if you're not caught up with the series to this point, then proceed with caution because we'll be spoiling things liberally. Now, I'd also like to remind you that The Legendarium is available on your favorite podcast player, but if you're looking for older episodes, you can find them grouped by subject at thelegendariumpodcast.com. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting us on Patreon and, of course, tell your friends and leave a review. I'm your host, Craig Hanks, and over there, if she lost all of her colors, it would immediately make her hair a little less cool. It's <laughs> Stephanie Bruckman. This is very true. Yeah. And whether, by the way, your hair came up on our live stream last night. Oh, really? <laughs> just, just, you know, for your edification. Uh, and whether or not he starts turning green and bragging about being a god, I might just shoot him with a cannon anyway. It's Ryan Bruckman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan is, uh, is, is hyped, or as the young children say these days, hype. Ryan is hyped to be here. Very much so. Very, yes. very much so. It's clear. It's clear by the way you're <laughs> bouncing on the couch. You're Tom Cruising on that couch all over the place. Well, I just found Scientology. What did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> I got an angry email about that one time. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, we made some crack about Scientology. And sure enough, there was the email. <laughs> uh, okay, so we've got some things to discuss. I went through, yeah, I did the housekeeping already. So I know I've already talked for a couple of minutes, but are you guys ready for a synopsis? And then we can dive into the book? Yeah. Okay, because there's a lot to get to with this <laughs> section of book two. There's a lot. Anyway, uh, okay. Second half of book two, Gavin loses green as well as blue. He travels to the Cremaria to get them to declare war on the color prince. He's successful, but alienates several of the color representatives in the process and expels the green entirely. His father wanted him to marry the green, but he marries Karis instead. But that's after he gets woken up in startling and rather erotic fashion by some girl who I don't remember, but he's pissed. He push pushes her off the balcony to her death. Uh, oh, and the real Gavin escapes, and the fake Gavin is going to let him go, but then shoots him in the face instead. Now, Chekhov's corpse has a bruise on his forehead from sitting up so fast in his grave, he cracked his skull on his own <laughs> coffin. Then there's a big battle. There's the birth of a green god. Kip uh, kind of Mariadocks it with the white Luxon knife, and then it gets hit with a cannonball or something and dies. So they killed the god, but they do lose the battle again. As, as they're sailing away, Kip outs... Andros Guile as a red-white, and they wrestle, and Gavin takes the white dagger in the chest. He and Kip fall into the sea, get picked up by pirates. Kip is thrown back overboard, but then Captain Gunner takes Gavin, who has lost all of his colors now, as a galley slave. Whew. It's a lot that happens in this section. Like in book two. The fastest synopsis ever of everything that happened. I know, and I'm sure I missed a few things, and you know angry gets emails black guard and yeah oh yeah there's the whole black guard thing like i said i i skipped over tia i skipped over all sorts of stuff and so 
yeah bring on the emails that's fine <laughs> but hopefully we'll talk about some of those things anyway but where do we want to start do we want to start with i feel like you have a real itch to start with <laughs> something with with something i want to talk about gavin and Dazen because uh, i, I kind of because figured. you know at this point it's like clearly brent <laughs> just wanted to get that out of the way so we might as well also yeah it's kind of you remember in that first book when you're like, oh, that's the biggest reveal ever. This is so cool, everything there. And then you get to the next book and he's like, yep, yeah, boom, gone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't even get any good like looks off your guys' faces. Get, giving me any more info. We've had time to process this, I, you know, go through to understand what's, what's well, happening. Well, the thing here. is, I, it's, so, it's so weird. But by the end of the book, I'm like, I've forgotten about it. You know, mm -hmm. by the end of the book, I'm looking back going, oh, yeah, I guess that happened. But at the time, I think I actually texted you. Yep. It was one of the, like, there's like two or three times in this series that I'm expecting messages from you, and that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah, we've gone through two, uh, at least two of them. Like, was it was it the Gavin Dazen reveal and then this one? Yeah, that's, okay. that's two of them. Two of them yeah, so. this one was, uh, was a, a pure WTF text. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you spend so, like, if we've set it up so much, you know, you, know, you make the crack about check off sitting up in his grave and cracking his head um because this is the biggest like Chekhov's gun that never gets fired oh my gosh in the sense of we've been expecting him to be the big bad to be this whole thing for a while now and now he's gone he's dead he's out and we've we've answered the question with was there brain matter yeah there was in <laughs> fact brain matter so you can go okay he is he's dead. dead yeah he is dead <sighs> You know, that's that's one thing about this magic system, like with the color stuff, is I, I keep expecting there to be some, uh, you know, reset button or some way out for something like this, but there's not. I mean, I still feel like I don't have a great handle on how Luxon works and all that stuff. <laughs> I, I, I still mm -hmm. don't quite understand the, the magic system, but there's this instance of getting shot in the face and then the girl that Gavin pushes over the balcony and... He describes in, in horribly gory detail that about she popped how... like a grape. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sort of thing. In case anyone else didn't get that visual, she and I... popped like a grape. <laughs> and I keep expecting there to be some magical Luxon out, you know, or off switch for this sort of thing. And nope. Well, I guess Gavin got stabbed in the chest and still managed to be alive, so... Well, but it's with the white Luxon dagger. Oh, I'm just saying. I mean, there is something yeah. there that... He can survive that, so. Right, and I mean, I knew something fishy was going on in the first book when he he takes the dagger to the back, right? Mm -hmm. But it's it's almost glossed over in the text. Uh, you don't know whether like, he got stabbed or just scraped. Or... Yeah, it's it's something like, and then Kip flew through the air and he reached, but well, what's his name, Simon? He reached Simon, who we also need to talk about, right after the dagger plunged into Gavin's back. But then it just goes on and so you're like wait did i read that right did he mean before is that a typo mm -hmm. <laughs> you know anyway so yeah he got stabbed but he got stabbed by magical no blood blade i don't know i guess he could have shot so, dazen in the face with magical white luxon bullets something yeah <laughs> yeah now we're talking oh we should have saved that for the end for your prediction white luxon bullets the bullets were made of ice <laughs> <laughs> all right so what else do we have to say about this stephanie how do you feel about this all that was a shocking moment because it is they set him up and you expect so much out of Dazen, 
and where he's getting. And you feel like he's getting so close to escaping and you don't know what's happening. So for him just to be ended in that way, it is. It was it was shocking. And I think um, Ryan and I were actually talking last night about how fantastic Brent Weeks is at creating those WTF moments. I have had so many like, not that I just can't anticipate what's happening in these books, but all of a sudden he just like smacks me across the face and he's like, just kidding. This is the way it's going to be now. And I'm like, <laughs> what the, but, and that was one of those moments. And it. my question is why, why the story is structured this way. And this is a real question. I'm not just saying that I don't like this. And so it's stupid. No, my question is really why is it? Uh, I, I see two major possibilities. I'm sure there are infinite smaller ones, but the first one would be that he created this situation with Gavin and Dazen. Uh, and then as he continued writing and outlining for the rest of the series, he says, you know what? That's not as fruitful a direction as I thought it was going to be. And so he just decides to chop that vine, you know, right where it stands. Maybe, maybe that's it. The other option would be that it's um, a George Martin style thing where he's setting up all these characters and, and he's using some of them to signal to you that nothing is sacred. Hey, this is not the story that you thought you were going to read and nothing is going to go according to you what you thought the plan was going to be. Right? I pick that one. You pick that one? <laughs> what do you think, Ryan? I, agree. I remember so reading that, having the very similar feeling of like, wait a minute, this we put a... Why did I waste so much time in a first-person perspective of this guy in the prison escaping if you're just going to kill him off here? Like, right. I've spent a lot of time with this character. Totally. Really good chapters, really exciting stuff. And like, sitting here going, okay, and now you're just going to throw all that out? Like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. I was upset. I'm like, this, even if you decided to go a different route, like, figure out a way to incorporate this storyline. Don't just kill it. Right. Like, that really frustrated me. But like I, it, like in a legit way, you're saying that you think this was a mistake, like or that that he should have written it differently. When I the on first read, yes, I just sat there. I was like, this you can't. I I give a lot of trust to the authors. I really do. I, you know that you're going to find a way to justify these decisions you make, especially big decisions like this. I had a hard time wanting to give him the benefit of the doubt that he would be able to pull this one off to make this make sense and be like oh yeah i see why you did that and why that's worthwhile um so i was really frustrated because i think that the whole prison sequence uh, escaping the prisons like i was just waiting and so excited for the day that he was going to break out of the prison be out there and they the real world was gonna have to deal with having two prisms again right i'm sitting like this is great but brent weeks i think i i have questioned multiple times throughout this series did he outline this whole series out? Did he plan everything out and he's writing his outline? Or is he one of those authors that just writes and hits like, ah, I've written myself into this corner, write myself out here. Like, right. because this feels like one of those moments where if you haven't outlined it out, you were like, I'm in a corner and I need to make a hard turn. Um, but I will say that I think having gone further along that, that he has outlined this because I feel like I, I'm not going to say whether or not this is justified, but I feel like... But you feel like it was planned? There, I do feel like this is more planned, and this is one of his opportunities to go through as he's writing from, you know, maybe back to front, saying, I want to get to here. 
he basically put us in a room full of rugs and just pulled one out and then he's pulled another one and then basically every time you land he's just putting you on another rug to pull out from under you at some point in time so just realize like that's you've still probably got you know five or six rugs to have ripped out from under you <laughs> boy we're really just beating that metaphor to death aren't we <laughs> sure well i think it also in that moment says something for where gavin is in his mindset i mean he had just killed a girl he thought he had lost the love of his life like he was going down and he had every intention of leaving himself down there and letting days and gavin go free and letting him return to his life until he actually sat down and had a conversation with the man and realized how crazy and power hungry and how good like how bad he was going to be for their world if he had let him go free right and i think he finally hit that moment because in his mind he's sitting here thinking he's never had the strength to actually kill his brother until he realizes how far gone his brother actually is and i this is a conversation that this kind of actually segues into how i want to talk about zyman who we don't see a ton of in this book, but enough that we can kind of talk about <laughs> him and real Gavin fake days in, in the same way. <laughs> Gosh, that is going to be confusing <laughs> until forever. Well, he's dead now, so yeah. we don't have to talk about him anymore. <laughs> uh, there's a, a passage, and I'm just going to look it up. I, I wrote it down here. Oh, in chapter 102, when Zyman is talking to Liv and... It's when she realizes that she needs to get out, that she never should have been with him in the first place. And now it's like, oh, you know, he's crazy. He's <laughs> whatever. Uh, he says to her, you're not very smart, are you? And, you know, he's gone through this whole kind of discourse about something or other. It doesn't really matter. But sh he decides that she hasn't grokked his plans quickly enough. And so he says, you're not very smart, are you? Uh and she thinks to herself, not smart enough to avoid, avoid you in the first place. Clearly, she froze. His charm had been slipping more and more frequently. He was a lizard beneath it. Mm. And, and when I read that, I thought, okay, so I think it, it sounds like we're talking about a common evolution of an abusive relationship. Mm. Um, and then the next line is, there was something wrong with him, something thin, an essential shallowness. How had she not noticed before? And when I read that, I realized that we're talking about sociopaths. And have, have either of you read anything about sociopaths, sociopathy? Yeah, and psychopathy. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I know a ton about the subject, but read a little bit about it. I read one book a while ago. Um, and from what I understand, the hallmark of a sociopath is that it's someone who cannot process emotion or, or cannot understand others. They can't look outside themselves or something along these lines, right? Both of them incorporate some level of inability to empathize with another human being. Right. Um, psychopathy and sociopathy both have a, a varying degree of ability to understand another person. Um, just, I think it's variations on how they act on that. Right. Yeah. And I do not know the difference. I, hey, who has two thumbs and isn't a psychology professor? This <laughs> you say isn't a psychopath. You want to, you want to go with that one? <laughs> Should we put that one to the test? So, yeah, I, I don't understand it necessarily, but it does sound like in the case of both Zyman and fake days and that that's what we're dealing with is somebody who, I, I don't know. What do, what do you think, Stephanie? With, with days and is it 
is it psychopathy is it sociopathy or is it simply power hunger because we we do have indications of the way that he used to treat Karis and others i think for me and having read a little bit more zyman is the one character in this entire series that actually scares me that if he was the type of person that if I ever came in contact with, like, he's just, he's terrifying. Because he's the type that you, he's not doing anything other than for his own um, selfish purposes. There's not an underlying goodness to him. Or or even necessarily badness. Yeah, he, but he's just terrifying because you don't know what he's going to do and there's no why. I'm that kind of person. I always like to know why someone's doing something and he doesn't. He doesn't really have a why for a lot of the stuff he does other than just that power hungry. And I think the thing with Dazen is he's such, he was groomed to be the type of person I think he was when he was originally imprisoned. When he finally had that last battle with- You're talking about Dazen? Yes, Dazen. When he finally had that last battle, he had been groomed by Andros- from the time he was young to be become prison to understand the power that he had as a guile and everything. And I think it was the insanity caused by his 16 years talking to a dead man that got him to that level of craziness that Gavin finally had to shoot him. There was no calmness about him that Zyman has in his insanity. Okay. I on on the other hand, I feel like if I were confronted with both of these characters in real life, I would know how to make sense of uh, of Dazen. I would, I even if he's crazy, I would at least have something to grasp onto and say, I I think I get what he's after. Mm-hmm. With Zyman, I mean, I I guess, but he hasn't even said like, oh, has he said I'm gonna rule the world or I'm gonna enslave mankind and stroke my white cat. <laughs> and you know, the Lord over all creation. I, I I don't know. It just seems like he he is an agent of chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Simon, I actually want to backtrack. Right. Right. trying really hard to figure out what he can and can't say at this point. So I, I want to backtrack just a little bit on you. We've kind of labeled him as a sociopath, but that's because he seems functioning, and that's not an accurate. He's a psychopath. Okay. Um. And I, I'm like, I gotta make sure I get this right because someone on there's someone who's got a psychology background who's gonna be like, no, you guys have got it wrong. I know, I know. Just we'll have to deal so with it. So let me give you this to definition and see if it, you think it fits better to Zyman or the other one. Incapable of empathy and forming loving relationships. However, they can pretend to be charming and loving. So those around them can't always detect their lack of empathy. That's a psychopath. Okay. A sociopath is capable of empathy and guilt. Uh, they're impulsive, hot-tempered, and erratic but may form attachments to some people or groups. Of those two, where would you put Zyman? Oh, psychopath. Oh, yeah, he's For a psychopath. Sure. Definitely there. Um, I Dazen, on the other hand, is just straight crazy. I don't think it's... You it, don't think it's like some sort of clinical thing? Uh, I think it, it's it's ability. You already talked about how he was groomed to be what he is um, by Andros and then thrown into a prison and that lack of being able to interact with anybody else. That I think that's a totally different beast as to necessarily to say his personality is one thing. Uh, but his his environment has shaped more of who he is in the last sixteen years. Right. Um, so I I wouldn't label him quite the same way. He if you let him out and went out to do things, I would label him a psychopath for sure. Okay. 
but Zyman is a terrible, terrible character, and you're, I don't think there's anything about him that you are supposed to like. Well, are, do you mean to say he's a terrible character or a terrible person? He's a terrible person. He's a great character. He's, he's, he's a scary. terrible, terrible, per, yeah, uh, he terrible person. Me. Yeah, yeah. You are, you should not ever look at Zyman and go, well, I get it. Have you guys ever dealt with someone? Have you ever come across anyone IRL who acts this way? I'm not sure that I've ever... I, there are people who I've questioned, like, do you, are you even capable of human emotion? You know, <laughs> just kind of flippantly. But I'm not sure if uh, if I look back, if I can think of somebody who I would say is that Zymony. Well, Ken is pretty... No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, I can't say. I can't I, think of because I think most of us would be intelligent enough that if we did come across somebody like that, that we wouldn't really spend a lot of time with that person. But I, I wonder though, because it's like I said, the way that he's written the relationship between Simon and Liv feels very familiar to a lot of abusive relationships, and I wonder if it's a little bit confusing because. Zyman is a character who's well positioned. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of influence. Um, and we so we don't necessarily recognize as easily when something like that is in our own lives. Uh, I've never been in a relationship like that before. Uh, but I, I know at least one person who has. I, well, I know many people who have, but one very closely. And well, and I think and it, we as readers are a little. Um, we have just more information. It's easy to look at Zyman and go, he's crazy. What right. is Liv thinking? Liv doesn't have all of the inside information that we as readers have. And I can see how he could come across as charming. And I know a lot of people that have been in abusive relationships, that's how they start. There's always some sort of level of they are charming. They they feel like they're trustworthy. And then as things progress, they realize that it's just a mask that they have on and there's something very deeply wrong and i think that's where zyman's at that he does have some level of charm because he knows he has to you can't you get can't where go through life yeah you can't get anywhere if you're not at least pretending to be nice to people right how do you think i've functioned all these years that's how i yeah that's exactly <laughs> what i was thinking i was like this is correct this feels <laughs> so familiar um anyway yeah i guess i was just thinking about that like it's it's easy it's easy to see it on the page it's a lot harder to see it in real life. And at a, I wonder, it's so tricky. It's easy to spout off advice and, and ideas about how to deal with this sort of thing. But uh, kind of what you said, Stephanie, was it's easy for us to see it because we have all this information. We're looking at it from the outside. We're, we're reading this story literally off the page, right? Um, it's harder if you're in that situation to recognize what's going on and to extricate yourself. And that's why it's so important to rely on family and friends for that sort of thing. And why somebody who is an abuser like this in a relationship tries so hard to cut those ties. Well, Liv's already in the perfect position to be used and abused in this situation. She's she's alone. She's so alone. She feels like a prisoner even though the color prince keeps telling her that she's not. And they kind of get to that point as she builds her relationship with the color prince. But she is. She's so alone. She's lost her family. She's lost her culture of what she thought she believed in. Her belief system's shaky. So to have anyone come up and show her even 
a small amount of appreciation, understanding, yeah, anything almost, because yeah. she knows that she's or not in attention. love with him. She's she's using him on a different on a different level, right? Than what Zyman is. So you can't say that. And no, I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> well, you were about to victim blame, weren't you, Stephanie? Yes, I was. <laughs> And I don't believe that. that that's not the case. But And I think it's just an understanding where her mindset is um, and who she is and her character and how he was written her, how the two of them have ended up together. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ryan, any more thoughts on this? I think on the flip side, we've talked a lot about being able to identify and, and stay away from people that there's value in also saying, taking an internal look and saying, hey, am I am I a little Zyman sometimes here? Right. And I'm reflecting on that because there's a good chance at some point in time you've done something that's Zyman-ish. And just taking some time to go like, you know what? Recognize it, move on, be better than that. Because that's the difference between like this. Changing away from that path is better. But yeah, I that's that part of the reason I say earlier, I said earlier that you should never look at Zyman and go, yeah, I get it. It's not that there isn't relatable things. It's saying that's not the person, that's not the sort of person you want to be. So if you if you have that moment, kind of go, oh, why do I... Why do I understand him here? <laughs> Maybe I need to just assess something here and decide if that needs to change or not. Right, right. Well, speaking of Liv, should we talk a little bit more about her? Because I have one more note Yeah. Uh, here from... So this is a few chapters earlier in chapter 97. Um, and this is actually Kip speaking with... Um, what's his dad? His fake dad's name? Gavin. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's, look, there's a lot of He's names. He's only a little so character. He's, He's yeah, whatever. I, I can't memorize them all, you guys. Uh, he, Kip and Gavin are speaking and Kip is, is kind of confused. He says, why, how could she go with them? They're monsters, literal, real flesh and Luxon monsters. And Gavin responds by saying, idealists mature badly. If they can't outgrow their idealism, they can, they become hypocrites or blind. Liv has chosen blindness, fixating so much on the Cromeria's flaws that she believes those who oppose us must be paragons. Um, and I, I really, really like this where, um, and this will, this will be a little bit inside baseball, but I'll try to explain it for listeners. But the three of us, we live in Utah. Utah is full of Mormons. Okay. <laughs> Mormon church, uh, has a very specific culture and belief system and, and not everybody who grows up in the church decides to stay in it. And when they leave, Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, it is a it is a big, earth shattering, life altering event, uh, and it, it creates. A, a, there, there are a few things. There are a few reasons I want to talk about this because this is applicable outside. Well, you know, well outside of Mormonism, this you can apply this to just about any belief system or, uh, or way in which you grow up. If you decide to strike out on your own, it creates a a vulnerability like what you were talking about, Stephanie, mm -hmm. where suddenly you are desperate for people to help you, to validate you, to uh, to help you feel okay with your decision. Right? Mm -hmm. This is totally normal and totally healthy to be feeling those <laughs> things, right? Um, but it's also it. I, I wanted to talk about the limits uh, of uh, well, the necessity. And the limits of credulity, uh, or I should say, of cynicism. I, it's anti-credulity, right? So if you're credulous, if you're a credulous person, you'll just believe whatever anybody tells you. And so a lot of times, if you grow up in a really religious 
situation and then you decide to get out of that later, then you kind of... Um, swing you, hard to incredulity. You, exactly. You swing way hard the other way and you're like, everything I've ever been taught was a lie. And, you know, it's all very... It, it's, a, like I said, big, life-altering, earth-shattering and all this stuff. And I was, I was curious about this. Where you guys where you guys uh, come down on this idea of credulity versus cynicism and is there a line somewhere is that line just different for everybody do you see what i'm saying yeah i do think there and i do think that there is a line that is and and, and is, how is live walking it and yeah. is she failing um i i have a lot of friends and, and in my own personal experience of distancing from a, from where you grew up in things like that um, and so the live story in this portion is very, uh, very personal to me there, but I've watched a lot of people who do, they make a really hard swing out. And I think that's live has started that out the same way. It's not, she's not to the point where she hates the chromaria. Like it's, it's more, I just don't believe that anymore. Like if you want to see her arc, there's those who swing out and go everything about that is wrong and terrible and it should be destroyed and it should never be a but part of it. But that's what anything. she's telling herself through all this. She, she is justifying her her being there with the color prints somewhat to that, but I don't think she's saying that the that the Cromerian needs to be destroyed. Okay, she doesn't like she doesn't believe all those things anymore. But not she's not looking to destroy okay. what existed prior. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, whereas like the color prince does, he wants to destroy. He I mean he grew up in the Cromeria. It's Koyos. He's right. one of the White Oaks. He wants to destroy what existed prior. Um, and I think it's very interesting to watch people. Um, live color prints anyone uh, in that swing to see if there's in or ever any swing back um, or a leveling out at all like a pendulum on things mm -hmm. um, and I think Liv is in a place where she can she's she's in a position where she could swing back to a certain degree I don't know that she would ever go all the way back um, to the far side of things just like um, anyone with their belief system some people go back some people don't and some people just live in this middle ground like you know what it's it, it can exist on its own. It's not mine anymore. Right. Like that's kind of a word is there. Um, there's another quote in the book, actually, that uh, similar concept from another group's perspective. It's Iron Fist and Gavin. Uh, they're talking because Iron Fist has lost his belief in or Holm. And he's a very he's a very religious man up to this point, but he's losing. He's lost his belief. Um, and it says here. Uh, da, da, da. When Rue falls, this will become a real war. And once it's a real war and not simply an uprising of a few disgruntled madmen, then the questions begin. At some point, every one of us will have to ask if we're on the right side. If we've already decided that our own side is wrong, that there's no Orhalem, that the Cromeria is simply making the best of a bad situation, then where do men look for, or then where do men looking for certainty turn? Maybe men shouldn't look for certainty, Gavin said. Should, shouldn't, doesn't matter. They do. And I think that's ding, ding, ding. That's beautiful. I, I've got that highlighted because I loved that concept is it doesn't matter if you've grown up your whole life with this certainty, like live or anybody here. And this is what it is. And you've now taken away the ability to find certainty by saying, by knocking out a pillar underneath what was once your whole structure, you're now looking in every direction for something and you're going to grab onto something most likely. And for live, it happens to be the exact antithesis of what she came from right which does make sense when we when we turn away from you know when, when we turn our back on what we know 
We assume the opposite must be true. Like, exactly. Like, that, oh, well, if this isn't the case, then the exact opposite has to be the case. And that's not necessarily true. There is a, a potential middle ground option or, or a different angle at which you can see the, uh, a different point of view, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. From a certain point of view. Uh, yeah, Stephanie, you're looking a little pensive. Well, I think this is also one of those moments that I that he's giving Liv depth as a character. He being I, Brent. Yes, Brent Weeks is giving her depth. And I know we've talked so much about why Liv is even there. Is she just there so we have someone's point of view from right. the color prints? And I think this is one of those moments where we realize that she's not. There's There's a bigger story for her than just being there to create a point of view for the reader. And I think that's the nice thing about her. And I, it, she, her storyline isn't huge from what I've read so far. I have read ahead a little bit, but it's growing. And I like where she's going with it. Mm -hmm. so. That's the thing about <laughs> epic fantasy, isn't it? Where, you know, based on what I've read so far, yeah, you could take this five book series and trim it down to a single book and get the story in there. But the thing about epic fantasy is it really wants to take you along for an entire journey and, you know, let these kind of situations like lives play out more organically than they would in a more contrived, uh, shorter novel. And, you know, different strokes for different folks. Well, and it comes, I keep forgetting how young a lot of these characters are. I mean, most of these drafters aren't living past 40 I mean, right. we're talking about a bunch of teenagers as we're, we're talking about midlife. that are talking at, like, yeah, that we're looking at Kip and Liv and Tia. They are. They're they're halfway through their lives at 15, 16. <laughs> um, and I, so I think it's an interesting watching the differences that he's given all of these different characters, these coming of age stories as they're coming into their adulthoods in at 20 uh, making these life-altering decisions about how they're going to live their lives because their lives are very short. They don't have till they're in their 30s to really start making some decisions like <laughs> like we do. Yeah, yeah, like like the real adults, <laughs> like like real adults like us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're very mature. We understand life and we make only good choices. <laughs> I have midlife crisis about every 5 years, so I don't know what you're talking about. 5 years. <laughs> wow. You are mature. Mine come fast and furious. I'm like five weeks. Yeah. I go through these cycles. Yeah. Oh, who am I? What am I doing here? I haven't accomplished anything in life. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's move to, do we want to talk about Kip some more? There was something in the last episode that I mentioned. I liked how Kip uh, is allowed to continue to be affected by his childhood. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I like that Brent is writing in that way and that it's not like it's not like, oh, I just accessed my second color and now I am perfectly confident and capable <laughs> and don't think about my mother at all anymore. You know, he mm. continues to deal with his demons. Uh, and there was another great, great pa passage that uh, that kind of summed that up. He says this, ch uh, sorry, chapter 114. So this is at the very end of the book. Uh, we've gone through all that stuff that I mentioned in the synopsis. Settling back onto his bench, Kip pulled the blindfold back up, defeated. He'd almost done it. Almost. The cloak of failure draped easily around his slumped shoulders. That's a great line, by the way. Mm -hmm. 
Kip almost again. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, are we annoyed yet? Uh, you know, he's, yeah, I'm glad that he's allowed to be uh, a, a little downtrodden and depressed and self-defeating and all of that stuff. But at a certain point, he's got to, he's got to come out of it at least a little bit right and so i'm literally writing down this note like come on let's let's pull him out a little bit literally the next line no that wasn't true he wasn't that kip anymore he wasn't stupid he wasn't weak he wasn't a coward he wasn't rejected he had gotten into the black guard he had been accepted by the best drafters and fighters in the world he had been accepted by his father he had fought a king and whites and a god he'd made huge mistakes he'd been stupid and weak and cowardly and rejected without him his father wouldn't have been stabbed, but he also had pulled his father from the waves, had saved his life when no one else could. Kip had donned almost as his spectacles. There was a middle path, a golden mean between the whore's son and the prisms. He wasn't really Kip Godslayer, but he also wasn't the boy who'd knuckled under, under to Ramir. Not anymore. I am what I do, and I am Breaker. I love his name. I love the Blackguard giving him that name and what it does to him as a character in that, especially in that sequence there, where it's it's a place for him, an identity for him to have uh, that is that is more than the wretch that he came from being, um, but less than you know what Zyman thinks he is. You know, going back to Zyman a little bit there, but yeah, I I adore that portion. Ah, so 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 good. Stephanie, thoughts. There's there's so much that happens to Kip that we've really glossed over and haven't talked much about, um, and I think even though it always they kind of make it seem like Kip being part of the Black Guard or at least going through the training was just his father's way of giving him something to do. Um, I know there there's a conversation that Gavin has with Iron Fist that I think it's Iron Fist that it's not he's not really expecting much from Kip but he needs Kip to do something. He needs him to learn something so he can use him later on in life. Right. Um, but I loved the the relationships and the path that Kip takes to get there. His his experiences in, in the Blackguard training and the friends that he made, his relationship as he builds with um, Tia. I adore Cruxer. He's one of my, <laughs> my favorite characters. Like that final moment when Kip has not made the Blackguard He's, he came in 15th. Gavin forces him to sit there and say, no, these are your friends and you're going to want, they're going to have your back still no matter what kind of thing. And then Cruxer just shatters the kid's knee that was in 14th after he cheated to, to, get, in. to get in. And Kip all of a sudden is now in the black guard. <laughs> I was like, holy cow, this kid who is the straight arrow that just adores and has planned his entire life around this this is, moment of is making to risk everything. the black art, he does. He, they obviously very much could have kicked him out, even though he checked first. He's like, yeah, it's a great bit of comedy. <laughs> Training accident. <laughs> the testing's, the over, testing's right? over, right? And then he hits like, and then he shatters the kid's knee. Um, just so he can claim it's a training accident because then he won't be expelled from the black guard. Cruxer is, uh, we all knew back in high school, we all knew the cool kids. There were the there were the cool kids club in in the club right, but then there was always one, or more, you know, but at least one who was actually cool, mm -hmm. and who was actually a decent human being yeah. and nice to all the other kids in the school, and you know, so there there's the popular club that everybody loves to hate, 
But there's always that one who's like, you know what? You deserve to be in the cool kids club. <laughs> you know, thank, thanks for, thanks for, you know, being who you are, whatever. And in case any of you were wondering, not me or Craig. No, no, that was, uh, no, we were, yeah, we were definitely on the outside looking in. Band room and theater room. That's where you found us. <laughs> uh, you were, you were, you were method acting in high school and I was tooting a trombone. So, I mean, we kind of founded the Cool Kids Club. If I you heard think that about you it. were doing meth and acting is what that was. So, <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> Davis High. That was the hot, yeah. meth hot spot of <laughs> exactly. Utah. It was, it was uh, rampant. Um, anyway, I guess I, I loved this passage as well. I thought it was great writing. I love the idea of it, this line, Kip had donned almost as his spectacles, which in the context of the story, of course, means that that's how he is seeing everything. And the way that it, the way that Brent is writing Kip might be slightly unrealistic. I don't think most of us are this self-aware, but if you ever have a flash of it, this self-awareness, then grab it and hold it as tight as you can. If you mm -hmm. can understand that, you know, we all put on spectacles and what what is the color of our spectacles and how do we view ourselves? Some of us are overconfident and don't understand that we're not <laughs> the best at everything. Others, most of us are probably largely like Kip where we don't understand our actual value and, mm -hmm. and what we've added to the world and our relationships and all that stuff. I feel confident. I feel 100% certain that if anybody tends to feel like Kip A, Kip almost, that you know, with a five-minute conversation, I could turn it around <laughs> You know, and anybody could, right? And somebody from the outside would be able to say, no, it's clear to me that you've been able to accomplish this and this and this and look at the amazing things you've done. Like, Kip B, that's that's a good place to strive to get, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, all right. Well, there's Kip. Do we want to talk more about the Blackguard stuff and Tia? And is I'm not sure there's a ton to talk about there's at this point. There's a couple point, of but moments. Um, the girl that um, unknowingly saved Kip's life I'm not training. sure I remember. It's yes. the night before the Blackguard final testing, and they had just been out doing their live oh, test or whatever. She gets her head yeah. And she, she steps in front of him as, in a, as someone shoots a musket at Kip. Mm -hmm. um, not that there's a whole lot to talk about now, but it's something worth remembering that mm -hmm. it happened. Yeah, I think her name's Lucia or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's Kruxer's. Yeah. Crux's girlfriend. girlfriend. Oh yeah, that was a heartbreaker, wasn't it? So, and that all happened the night before all of these kids have to battle for the rest of their life, basically. <laughs> yeah, and it in a very painful moment when you get to the testing, the when they're first testing, and you realize Cruxer, that whole team has been moved down three slots. Yeah, is what put is what puts Kip in the position that he's in because they didn't complete the They're like, they didn't. A girl their got test, shot. Yeah. Like she died right there. There's a good reason they didn't complete their test. The black guard came in and inter like interfered with everything when that happened as well, and yet they still got punished for it. I was like, that is cruel. That yeah. is cruel. You know, I'm kind of wrestling a little bit with that because you have told me and everybody has said on the Weeks forums and in our Discord and everything, they've said Brent Weeks will... You, like you've been saying, pull the rug out from under our characters and you'll you'll be so frustrated that good things <laughs> never happen to our characters and all this stuff. And and I'm kind of seeing that right now more with the minor characters. Mm -hmm. 
and, or who turns out to be minor characters, uh, um, Dazen. <laughs> um, but, but but what I'm seeing, and you know, maybe this is my the color of the glasses that I'm reading the story through. I don't know, but I keep seeing things like Kip doesn't make it into the Blackguard. His dreams are shattered, and it's all because of these cheating scoundrels. And this horrible thing has happened to him. And I seriously, I thought of you. And what you had told me to expect with the story, I'm like, oh man, he's going to have to figure out something else for the rest of his life. And then a page later, Cruxer gets him into the Blackheart. <laughs> mm-hmm. And kind of a similar thing with Gavin. Gavin pushes the girl out the window accidentally on purpose, whatever. And his life is ruined. He's got to flee the Chromaria and nothing is going... Oh, no, never mind. Uh, the blackguards lied for him. Yep, the blackguards lied for him, and everything is just my fine first now. thought about that is when is that coming back to bite him in the butt? All <laughs> like, oh, right, these kids have to be found out that they just lied to, to everyone. But it's kind of to at least to the white uh, and maybe some others. It's kind of an open secret, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not. They probably all know Gavin they, actually did kill the girl. Yeah. Anyway, so I guess uh, I'm just looking at a few instances in this story where I'm like. Yeah, terrible things are happening, and then he pulls it back out. Pulls him out of the fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I I guess I'm a little bit trepidatious for books three, four, and five to get to what everybody's been talking about. But so far, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of thinking for our our three or four main characters, things seem to be pretty much going the way you would expect them to in a story like this. They just have to go. They have to pass through the failure first in the fight and then the try fail cycle. He runs. He does that where they got to go through the fail, but there's usually something. The one thing about that that most of the time what has pulled them out of the fire has been something that they have established prior. For example, it's Gavin and his connection to the Blackguard. They call him Promakos because of their love for him and what, what they're willing to do right. for him. So he's built that up there. For Kip, it's the connections that he's made. So I I agree 100% like that he does. It's like, oh, this terrible thing has happened but then they get pulled out of the fire, but they get pulled out of the fire because of the work they've done before. It's not just a deus ex machina coming in and being like, all right, we're going to move our characters into a into the position we need them to be in type thing. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, any more to say on this subject? I don't have anything clearly. Hmm. We good? What do you guys want to talk about? We got another... Yeah, we got another five, ten minutes. There's there's only one little epic battle at the end of this book. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about that? That no one's talked about. Ken's not even here. Who cares? <laughs> it only takes up like the last how many chapters of this book. I but... will say that is that is a pattern I'm noticing with Brent Weeks, which is this dude knows how to draw out a battle sequence. Where I remember this from the first Night Angel book where I, it was the climax, the the climax of the book, and I looked down at my little Kindle, and it says sixty percent. I'm like, you got to be kidding me! Mm-hmm. And I just kept reading, and it was like this forty percent of the book was climax, and I was like, nobody can hold on to that sort of climax. <laughs> uh, anyway, but he tends to do this, right? It's yeah. long, long battle sequences. The the first book ended with that the assault on. Garrison, Garrison. Mm-hmm. and it was a very long sequence. Anyway, all right, what do you want to talk about with this battle? Do you want to talk about Tia? Do you want to talk about Gavin and the the new god, Adarat? Adarat. Uh, this is the first time in this this sequence where we're starting to get the bigger picture of what the color white, what the, the color prince is trying to do. Yeah, here. okay. He's like, okay, we're bringing back the old gods. We're bringing back this previous existence. Um, 
who control the colors and and if they come back it's a really bad thing for the chromaria and drafters because we learn through the sequence like adarat is the green god so all the green drafters who are within range of adarat's influence are useless and what is it they they kind of go crazy or they it's it hyperactivates the latent uh, personality traits of green. Yeah. yeah. Something along those lines. So because green is more wild and like the, they will go wild and they will stop listening to directions, things like that. It's, right. It's basically a, you know, a shot of five hour energy straight into the, <laughs> just, it just injected right into my veins. Yeah. Straight in there. Um, <laughs> well, and I think it says a lot like looking back on, on the blue Bane and when Gavin, um, destroyed the blue Bane and he said that they were just, they're, the blue whites were just laying there. They were just waiting. But that's a trait of being blue. It's that that calmness, that logic, that thinking through things. Where with the green bane, it is just mass chaos. But that's part of the traits of being green. And it's it's bringing those out on... Like, um, there's a moment where they talk about the Blackguard and how they have to keep those that draft green away right. so that they don't make things Kill everybody worse. else. Because obviously having someone trained like that and then going crazy would be bad. And then there's a scene as they're as they're sailing up to the battle. There's a scene where they stop at the beach and there's this town that's been wiped out and everybody's either killed the others or run away uh, or killed the others and run away. And they're talking to this old fisherman. He's out killing whales Mm -hmm. on the beach. All these herd of beached whales what do you call a pod i guess of whales. Mm-hmm. a pod of whales mm-hmm. and they're chatting with him and he's like i don't know what happened we had this whole city or this whole village and there's like five of us who are left who aren't completely insane but everybody else just went crazy they went nuts and it brings up an interesting question about what it means to be a green drafter and what the magic system means to everybody and clearly it affects more than just drafters and i i don't know i don't know what's going on with everybody i think um how has it filtered down to the common folk i guess well there's also this thing where we learned early in the first book that fear brings out the ability to draft it's kind of like breaking or snapping in mistborn right right he's like these different concepts and so if all of a sudden you have this green bane or and you have a bunch of white shook or whatever a lot of people in the town might get really afraid and start to be able to draft and then they're affected by oh we've got green drafters here um on top of if you want to talk about potential bloodlines and things like that you know being different places uh i this actually reminds me a lot of the robin hobb series okay um, assassin's apprentice yeah where the bad guys were basically sucking the souls out of people and turning them into zombies that right attacked everyone like that's what I'm envisioning the Bane doing to this village being near that. So is essentially just if you have even the smallest bit there, it activates that and turns you into a, a green zombie, basically. Sweet. Love it. Green zombies. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, it kind of gives a reason as to why what's happening to Gavin is so important. Because as the prism, he's supposed to keep all these colors in balance. And as these Banes show up and as he's losing these these colors and the ability to use these colors it's not just that he's not going to be able to do these sacred ceremonies and whatnot but it's the world going into chaos he's no longer able to keep things balanced 
And as these drafters, they're not able to balance themselves. And that's part of what the big overall problem is, is the color prints wants to give everyone these freedoms where the, the drafters can choose what they want. Well, that's where the Camaria stance is, is that if we don't have a prism to keep the world balanced, we're going to go into chaos. And that's kind of what the bigger picture all is. So you get all these banes showing up and the entire world is going to end up just like this little village of five people. Which, yeah, I guess we're starting, like you said, Ryan, we're starting to get the big picture of what that all means. What they're all fighting for. Right. But I still, I I don't feel like I have fully grasped the concept of all of these gods and the idea of Adarat and and like I said, how does this, how is this affecting, why is this affecting these common villagers who aren't drafters? Um, I guess, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but I, I will say I was right ish so far, <laughs> apparently in my prediction about the idea of the colors being so closely tied to the personality of the God behind them. Right. So yeah. I feel like I'm pretty justified in that, at least so far in the story. Whether it's, I don't know offhand whether it's connected to the personality of the God or if the God takes on the personality of the color. Like, does that make sense? Oh, right, right. And yeah. And that's another thing I don't understand is Adarat. I was like, okay, so Adarat is a God, but then Adarat is just what the, the absolute essence of green distilled into the, the body of a drafter because the who was it uh who it was somebody we know or somebody we know of who became Adarat. Yeah, it was the um it was the man who and I really hope I'm not spoiling anything. Oh, I'm it's the father the of father, the green of of the green that Gavin kind of ejected from the council. Uh, Tysus Malargos. The, yeah, Malargos. Yeah. It's not no, it's, it's her uncle or something. He's related to her, but it's, it's the not, one who knows about is, Gavin's secret. Her father is the one that I think it's her father that her mother had killed. Yes, that his mother had killed because he knew Gavin's secret, and right. so she had him killed. Right, but, but it, yeah, but I think it's like die. an uncle or something. There was no brain matter. The green, the green god. Or Either whatever. way, he wasn't a major player. Like yeah. he wasn't a major character, but he wasn't recognized by Gavin. <laughs> right, um, which is funny because they also. Have, the previous understanding of the old gods was, oh, Adarat was a woman because she was these, um, the courtesan of... The, the god of wildness and sex and yeah, love and rock and roll. This, and... this old middle-aged man, you know, <laughs> right. type thing. So it's slightly different. Right. Well, I can tell you, well, yeah, when I'm a middle-aged man, still, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> I'm sure here in the, uh, in the uh, exurbs of Utah... That's what's really called for, I and think. I don't think ibuprofen counts as a drug in that, <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> All right. So we should probably start wrapping up. Any final thoughts on the blinding knife? The blinding knife. Like maybe the blinding knife itself. Uh, uh, yeah. Where you guys, where, what do you feel that it has now stabbed Gavin? And it grew into a sword. Suddenly it's like this whole sword sticking out of his chest. Not a dagger, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's about as far as you can get with it. <laughs> That's the yeah. With this thing, I kind of feel like I freaking love the the blade that it turns into. I don't know anything about it. It's just a. All I knew is it turned into a sword, and that's why the book is called The Blinding Knife because it stabs him and then he loses all of his colors. And so now we're gonna get bane, yellow banes and orange banes and red banes and all these banes, right? Um, so we know that, and I don't know. 
I don't really care. The, well, okay, so we know that that's why it's the title of the book. We still don't know why the Black Prism is called the Black Prism, but presumably that'll get answered someday. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but here's my prediction. Are you ready for a prediction? Mm-hmm. Um, book four, book three. Which one is? Yeah, book broken three. Eye. The Broken Eye. Somebody's gonna break the halo. I think it's gonna be Kip. Okay. And I think it's gonna be a situation where the Chromaria has put the kibosh on breaking the halo uh, out of an abundance of caution, an understandable abundance of caution. You know, bad things can happen. Bad things have happened in the past. And so this is the new, this is the new regime. No more breaking the halo. We'll kill you first. So then you got the color prince and he's encouraging everybody to break the halo. And we're, we're having a, a, a halo breaking party around here and everybody's going to have a great time. I think there's going to be some, th- this is what I wish what I want from Star Wars, where it, it, light and dark, at some point, we have to understand that they need to come together. There's been this whole thing about bringing balance to the Force and all that, and then Star Wars as a concept or as a story just decided to completely ignore that. Uh, but we need to bring balance to the Force. That's what I want out of this, is a, a truer understanding of what it means to break the halo and the dangers involved, and Kip is going to be our model for that uh, he's going to break the halo in book three and then he's going to have to deal with that and maybe he'll seek out the color prince's army and you know try to try to get some coaching through what what's happening to me and all this stuff that's 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 what i'm thinking okay kip okay. is kip is gonna break he's the broken eye yeah okay unless dang it the third eye on the island of Sears. Yeah, hey, I remembered because it's not Kmart. Um, on Sears Island, maybe she will also pop like a grape at some point <laughs> and she'll be the broken eye. I don't know. Okay, any other final thoughts and predictions? I can't give any predictions, obviously. Yeah, no, you can't either, Stephanie. I'm so far in You're and it's hard so to actually pre- to I, predict anything. Yeah, I'm very, very happy to say that I have completed the series. So yeah, yeah. I only have one book left. So I'm done. I'm almost done with four. Nice. Uh, yeah. So speaking of which, uh, the month of October is coming up and it's going to be a big one for us. We, Ryan and I will be recording our conversation with Brent about the Odyssey this week, next week, whatever it is. Uh, but we're going to be recording that and we will release that episode the week that the, what's it called? The Burning, Burning White. White. The Burning White is released. So that'll come out in late October. I think it's scheduled for the 26th or 27th. So look forward to that. Uh, That is a situation in which we will ask him. We will talk probably very little about the Burning White uh, and Lightbringer in general. We probably won't have that much opportunity because that's not what the author's shelf is about to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so don't expect a ton of like new insights. It's just a way for you to get to know the author a little bit better through their love of something else in this case he has mentioned that he loves the odyssey i he sent out a tweet at some point where somebody was trying to visualize gavin and he said imagine odysseus you know like in the way that he looks and so i'm you know maybe i'll ask him about that at what point in his journey odysseus at what point in his journey (laughs) he goes through a lot He, he does we'll get there anyway so we'll have that episode uh, but then Ryan and I are planning. I hope I can catch up, but I, I need to read three books in in three weeks, three giant doorstoppers in three weeks uh, for us to have 
an episode ready to go. So in the middle of this whole series, I think I've mentioned this before, in the middle of this whole uh, Lightbringer podcast series, we will insert a book five spoiler-free review and then continue on with the the episodes that we're making like this, the mm-hmm. spoilerful ones. Sound good? Everybody on board? Mm-hmm. Okay. Stephanie, don't be don't be too excited about all this. Yay! Yay! All right, sounds good. We will see you guys for The Broken Eye, part one, coming up in as soon as possible, basically. <laughs>